Once upon a time, I uh, happened to catch an ad for a television show on TV, and um, it it starred, uh, this particular ad had uh, Patrick Warburton uh, on it. Uh, he was, he's got that, that very distinctive, deep bass voice in a very kind of slow, moderated way of speaking. And I can't do his voice because uh, it, that's, I mean, that's, that's how he makes his money. Nobody has a voice quite like his. But anyway, he's playing an older married man giving advice to his young newlywed friend. And he says to, the, to his friend, you know, one thing I've learned in all my years of marriage is that compromise is the key to a successful marriage. So, for example, one time my wife wanted to get a cat, and I did not want to get a cat, and so we compromised and we got a cat, <laughs> which I thought was a pretty funny line. It makes me smile every time I think about it, but it really is true that sometimes compromise is necessary and good, even if it means giving the person everything that they want. Sometimes it's necessary out of love for someone to simply give them everything they have asked for, but there are other times, particularly in a spiritual sense, where a small compromise is harmful and a large one is deadly. Amen? I've said this before, but it bears repeating that only 10% of the ingredients in rat poison are actually lethal. Everything else in it, you can eat, and it's totally fine, and you will not be harmed in any way. But that other 10% will take your life. And a little compromise can be a dangerous thing. Uh, in the same way, a little doctrinal and moral compromise in your Christian life is harmful and sometimes lethal, and there's nothing funny about giving in to it. Amen? Even if we only give in a little bit. And th this week what we're looking at is Jesus' letter to the church at Pergamum, which is a church that compromised in both its teaching and its morals, and is therefore in danger of coming under Jesus' judgment. And before we read it, we need to pray uh, that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, not just to the churches, but to our church. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us your word and you give us these letters to churches from Jesus' own mouth. To help us to identify the sin that might infect our hearts that we need to repent of. And the areas where we have compromised, perhaps, where we should not have given ground. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying here this morning. And Father, help us to receive it as from your mouth, as it actually is, the Word of God. 
And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to read to you uh, the letter to the church at Pergamon. Uh, it begins in chapter 2 of Revelation, uh, beginning verse 12. And this is what the Word of God says. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows except the one who receives it. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. As with most of the letters to the seven churches, this one includes seven critical key components that we need to notice. Uh, first, it begins with an introduction, uh, an identification of which church he's specifically speaking to. Then a description of Jesus related to the vision of, of him that John saw in chapter 1 and also related to the problems that the church in particular being addressed is facing. So those two things are tied together. The description of Jesus based on the vision John saw and the problem that that particular portion of that vision is meant to highlight and address. And then also a commendation or an encouragement for the things the church is doing right, and then a rebuke for what they're doing wrong, and then a command to follow, to rectify the sin that they're engaged in, and then an encouragement to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. And then a promise of rewards for those who do listen and are part of those who overcome and receive God's blessing and enter into his reward. Now this letter is addressed to the church at Pergamum. Pergamum is the ancient capital of uh, the province of Asia. Uh, it's where uh, the province of Asia is where all of these seven churches are located. It's probably founded initially as an offshoot of the church at Ephesus. As the church at Ephesus grew and prospered, they planted these other churches. And Pergamum was one of these. The city is located on a large hill that towers a thousand feet above the surrounding plain. So it's a strategic location. It's defensible. And it was massive. It was the royal city. It had a library containing at one time 200,000 volumes. Which in the ancient world, if you can imagine, in a world of hand copying... 
And, and these books were produced on vellum, which is uh, dried and stretched animal skin. And it was, it was a, a library that rivaled the famous library at the city of Alexandria. It was an amazing place. It was a cultural center. It was also a city that was devoted to paganism and idolatry. They had huge temples. More on that in a minute. But Jesus' description of himself here that you see in verse, uh, in verse uh, 12 is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. That's important that you see that. Because in the Bible, the sword is a symbol of both warfare and of judgment and the authority to bring judgment. So when you have the sword, you have the right to bear the sword, that gives you the ability, some of you will remember this, to deal with all enemies, foreign and domestic. Remember, some of you made that oath. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. Right? Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Um, that is the idea, that the sword is for that purpose, to deal with those who are enemies that are foreign. You go to war. And you deal with enemies internally. Judgment. You deal with those who are criminals with the sword. It's the symbol of capital punishment. And so in Romans 13 you see, for example, Paul speaking of the government as those who bear the sword. And he reminds the, his Roman readers that you need to obey the civil authorities because they do not bear the sword for nothing. So be a good citizen. Because God has instituted government, right? So when Jesus introduces himself to this church as the one who bears the sharp two-edged sword, it is a reminder that he has ruling authority and power over both life and death over those whom he rules. And it's a warning that you do not want to come under his judgment. Amen? When Jesus shows up at the end of this book, bearing the sword against the nations who have rebelled against him, it is not a good scene. In fact, it's terrifying. And so, so Jesus reminds his own people, by the way, I bear the sword. Not just against those who are not part of my people, but also against those who are, if they live in rebellion against me. And that's their problem. Uh, verse 13 contains the church's commendation, where you get Jesus' encouragement for what they're doing right. And what they're doing right is awesome. They have refused to renounce their faith despite an aggressively pagan culture around them. In fact, it's so pagan that Jesus in this letter twice refers to it as the place where Satan has his throne. Now commentators vary on, on what that means. What does it mean, the place where Satan has his throne? Well, some 
Some commentators say, well, it's the Roman center of governing authority and the Roman Empire was devoted to paganism and so therefore wherever Rome has its rule is a place where Satan also rules. And some say, well, that's what it means. Other people talk about one of the pagan temples that are there and there are two major ones. One is devoted to Asclepius, which, who is the, uh, the ancient Greek god of healing. And see if this freaks anybody out. When you went to his temple in order to get healed, they had a massive number of non-poisonous snakes roaming around the temple. So it's like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? You drop down and it's snakes. Why did they have to be snakes? Right? Um, and there's snakes everywhere because the symbol of this particular god was the snake. Y'all, if you've seen the medical symbol where they have the snake, right? That's from Asclepius, this, this ancient Greek god. And what you would do if you were sick is you would go and sleep in the temple and hope that one of these snakes crawled over your body in the wounded portion. And that would be the touch of the god bringing healing to your body. Creepy, right? Some of you are going, I think I'll just die. <laughs> if that's the alternative, I think I'm just going to die. Right? But the other thing that they had in this, in this city, in Pergamum, was a gigantic, massive altar of Zeus. Uh, Zeus was regarded as the god of the heavens, the god who was the... the the sustainer and the ruler of all of the other gods. And they had this massive altar. Um, it was, if I, if I think I've, if I have the dimensions right, it was 120 feet by, I believe, 114 feet in its dimensions. And the, the platform that the actual altar set on was 18 feet tall. It was huge. It towered over the surrounding area. And around the base of this altar, where they would offer sacrifices to this pagan god, they had carvings, you know, a, a frieze carved into the base of this thing of the gods fighting giants. And people from all over the ancient world would come to worship Zeus on this altar. You know, in a lot of these other communities that are addressed here in this section of Scripture. It was, a, it was a challenge to be a Christian on the one day of the year where you had to go and offer your sacrifice to the emperor. But this is a place where it is a challenge 24-7, 365. This is a city that's devoted to these gods. And where a lot of the local economy depends on everybody worshiping these gods. It's a hard place. And when these people, the church at Pergamum, were tested, they withstood the test. One of them, a man named Antipas, was even martyred for it. Church tradition says that he was placed inside a bronze bull. If you're not familiar with this particular method of execution, they had designed this. The Greeks were brilliant in their ability to build things. And they had designed this thing with pipe organs, essentially attached to it, so that 
when the person, they would light it, they would put them inside, lock it up, and then they would light a fire around it and literally roast the person alive inside. And as they screamed, it would make music out of the bull's nostrils. It was a sick, sick place. And Antipas was put to death that way. That would focus your mind, would it not? On whether or not you were willing to die for Jesus being roasted alive. But still, they did not renounce their faith. They had watched one of their members be executed that way, and they still did not renounce their faith. They have been a faithful witness to Christ, and Jesus is encouraging them to be a faithful witness because, guess what? He is the faithful witness. Remember, that's how he's described in chapter 1 as the faithful witness. And he's telling them, you need to faithfully witness for Christ. But there's another side to this letter. You also need to make war against worldliness. You need to make war against worldliness. Verses 14 to 16, Jesus gives a rebuke and command to rectify the problem that he identifies in their church. Verse 14, he identifies the problem by saying that some of them have adopted the teachings of Balaam. Let me tell you who Balaam was. You can read his story in the book of Numbers. It occupies about five or six chapters in the book of Numbers. You'll read some of them if you're in small group. If you're not in a small group, get in a small group. All right? Uh, if you're not in a small group, see me. We'll get you into one. Uh, because small groups are part of the heartbeat of, the, of this church and the life of who we are together. We practice uh, the Christian life together in our small groups. So if you're not in one, get in one. But anyway, uh, in the book of Numbers, you read this story about a man named Balaam. And Balaam is a false prophet. And he is, he's, he's kind of a, you can always identify the false teachers by anybody who's willing to say whatever they need to say in order to make money. Right? And this guy is a false teacher, and he's willing to say whatever anybody wants him to say for a buck. And so he gets hired by Balak, who's king of Moab, and he says, Hey, I want you to come and curse the people of Israel. And Balak's like, Well, I'm on my way. Get your money ready. Right? And so on his way, he has a dream where God speaks to him and says, Hey, don't say anything against the people of Israel. You say only what I want you to say. And, he, and uh, Balaam's like, oh, whatever, okay. So God, he's on, traveling on his donkey down to Moab. Remember this story? This is one of the great fun stories to tell if you're, in Sunday, if you're a Sunday school teacher. He's riding on his donkey, and the donkey sees an angel in the road blocking the path. And so the donkey is, whoo, <laughs> off the other direction, right? Balaam's beating the donkey with his stick. To get him back on the road. And then, and then they, the, he sees the angel again and woo, up the, or to the rear march goes the donkey, right? And the donkey can see what the prophet can't. Guess what God is trying to communicate there? 
right? You're dumber than the animal you ride on. Okay. <laughs> and, and finally, the donkey gets into a narrow place where he can't turn to the right or left, and he sees the angel, and he just lays down. And Balaam's got his stick, and he's whacking that donkey, and the donkey all of a sudden turns around, looks at him, and says, Why are you beating me? Have I ever been a bad donkey to you before today? And Balaam's like, now think about this. You're going to answer your donkey back. <laughs> okay. He says, no, you've never been a bad donkey. He's like, look. And then all of a sudden, he can see the angel. And the angel says, it's a good thing you have a bad donkey today because he could see me and I'd have killed you. Now, when you get there, you be sure to tell exactly what God said. And so when he gets there, Balak sets up this whole, this whole altar scenario overlooking all the people of Israel. And they offer all these bulls and rams and so forth. And then he says, all right, Balaam, lay it on us. Give us the curse of the people of Israel. And out of his mouth pours all this blessing. And Balak's going, maybe you didn't understand the assignment. Or maybe, maybe, you know, the Israelites' God is a regional deity, and so we just need to move to a different spot. So they go to a second spot. Same thing. Out of Balaam's mouth comes all of this blessing. And then finally, they go to a third spot. And out of his mouth pours blessing upon blessing. And Balak says, essentially... Well, since you didn't do what I hired you to do, I'm not paying you. But Balaam doesn't go home empty-handed. He comes up with a new plan. And his new plan is this. I'll tell you what. I cannot get God to curse these people. He won't let me. But i tell you what you can, you can do is you can recruit God to your side and have him curse his own people. Well, how do I do that? I mean, it's a devious plan. I'll tell you what you do. You send out some of the girls from Moab and tell them to and invite the Israelite men to sacrifice to your gods. Ooh, that's a good plan. Because the Moabites worship fertility gods, which is a nice way of saying that they're going to go and offer sacrifice. These are people who've been living on manna in the wilderness. And they're going to have steaks grilling. And that smell is going to waft over the Israelite camp. And they say, you know, you ought to come worship our gods. We get to eat steak. Oh, and by the way, as part of our worship, some of us are going to get naked later with some of you men. Is this an appealing offer? Oh, baby. And some of the some of the Israelite men are seduced. And they go right into the worship of these gods. And they are seduced by stake and sex to worshiping another deity. And God, in response, sends a plague on these people. And in one day, 20-something thousand of them die as a result of the plague. 
And the only way that it stops is when Phineas, the son of Aaron, takes a spear and follows one Israelite man and one Midianite woman into their tent. And while they are engaged in what they are engaged in, he spears both of them to the ground. And the plague is stopped. But thousands of people died as a result of the seduction of the people of Midian. God's judgment fell on his own people. And Jesus is saying, some among you have fallen for the teachings of Balaam. Now, is Balaam still around? No. But Balaam becomes a symbol for false teaching and the seduction of immorality. And he ties that into the current day label of that heresy, which is the Nicolaitans. These are people who claim to be followers of Nicholas, the first, one of the first deacons that you see in the book of Acts. And their teaching essentially is this. Come and follow Jesus. You can be forgiven of your sin. And it doesn't matter what you do with your body. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. It is okay to sleep around. It is okay to be as immoral as you want because your sin is covered. It's fine. God is gracious. Is that a seductive falsehood? Yes, it is. It is. There always seems to be some group or other that is selling this particular version of false teaching. That you can be a follower of Jesus and engage in whatever sin strikes your fancy. But this is what God's Word says. Let me read it to you. And just, this is just one place. First uh, John chapter three verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning. He has been born of God. Let me say it another way. God did not send His Son to suffer and die for our sins in order that we could give ourselves over to sin without consequence. God did not send his son to die on a cross to take away our guilt and our sin so that we could sin without guilt or consequence. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus came to take away sin, not that we might live in it safely. And whether you're members of the church at Pergamum or members of Chili Bible, you've got to embrace what God says clearly and repeatedly. Flee from sexual immorality and make war against the sinful desires that wage war against your soul and against mine. Amen? In verse, uh, let's look at this here. Uh, verse 15. Uh, verse 16. Here's the command. Therefore, repent. Give 
If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Here's the choice. And this is a stern passage. Either you can rebuke and discipline these people who are living in immorality and promoting it as acceptable, or you can face Jesus' judgment. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. Let me be very clear. This, this bit about Jesus having the sword from his mouth is not a joke, and it's not merely verbal correction either. Sometimes Jesus chooses to correct his children with disease and even death if they do not repent. If you don't believe me, check out 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, which talks about how some people were improperly taking communion. And, and it says, therefore, some of you are weak and some are sick and some are dead. And in 1 John 5.16, it, it gives another example where John says, you can sin such that Jesus takes your life. He will deal with you in discipline that sternly if you do not repent. Is that a stern warning? Yes. That is a safe description of that particular warning. And it's one we do well to heed. Amen? And by the way, it's not just immorality. We're not, we're not called to, to, to give aid and comfort to any sin. Not immorality, not gossip, not slander, not greed, not any sin. Right? So just because your particular flavor is not addressed doesn't mean that Jesus isn't speaking to you here, that you need to turn loose of this. All right, um, and we need to do this so that we receive a rich welcome home. Second Peter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a lavish reception into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the idea of verse 17. Jesus is repeating that same idea for this church. There's encouragement to listen to what the Spirit says and a reward for those who overcome. In fact, this verse offers two rewards for those who, who overcome. Every genuine believer, that's the, in the context of Revelation 1-3, to the people who are genuine believers, the people who are faithful to follow Jesus to the end, are those who overcome. And every one of them is given these promises at the end of every one of these letters. And, and you get two promises. One is hidden manna. Interpreters vary as to what that means. I think it means that in heaven we will eat in with God in fellowship with him at his table. That 
that just as the people of Israel were nourished directly from God's hand, in, in the same way we who are genuine believers in Christ will one day be directly nourished from God's hand. We will be fed by God himself in a miraculous way. Is that good? Yeah, that's good. And it, the good gets better here. It says that you'll also get an, a, a white stone engraved with a new name unknown to any but God and the one who receives it. I think that's one of the most unique and special fun promises in God's word. You see, if you were in the ancient world, if you were the victor in an athletic contest, you received a number of things. One of the things that you received was a white stone. And that white stone designated you as the victor, and it, it was your ticket, if you will, into a celebratory banquet that followed your race. So, you know, I don't run anymore. The joints will not hold up for that. But, um, but when you finish your race, certain races, they give you things, right? You get a, all I ever got was like a participation medal and a, and a t-shirt, right? You know, because they, they could, they, and it, it just said, you know, like, you know, Indianapolis 500 Festival Mini Marathon, and that was cool, right? You finished 13 miles, awesome, right? Uh, you know, they didn't have like a category for old, fat, and slow, but, uh, but I finished, right? I finished. And then there's a celebration that you get to enjoy. At the end of that race, they have this whole park full of food stands and, and cold drinks and, and your family's waiting there. And, it's, and, and in order to get into that stuff, you have to have finished the race. You finish the race and then you can go, you know, drink something cold and eat a funnel cake. Right? It's great. You haven't eaten a funnel cake in like eight months. And so you go in and you can do this stuff, right? Well, this is that idea, only this is even better than that. Because as part of that victor's banquet that you enjoy, you get given a new name, a pet name, between you and God. And I think this is, this is because... You, know, you, you see this in Scripture. Whenever somebody comes into a new kind of relationship with God, they get a new name. You seen this? So when, when Jacob, the deceiver, finally comes to understand who God is and to worship him, he becomes Israel. He's given a new name that indicates his new status, right? When, when Abram comes to believe in the living God and to trust in him, he becomes known as Abraham. When Saul turns from being a persecutor of the church to being a proclaimer and planter of the church, he is renamed Paul. When Peter, the loudmouth, who, who always gets himself in verbal trouble on all kinds of stuff, when he finally comes to understand who Jesus is, he gets a new name. He becomes known as Peter, not Simon anymore. Peter, the rock. 
Rocky. By the way, if I'm picking nicknames, Rocky's pretty good, right? No one wants to be known as Baldy or something like that, right? Uh, <laughs> Rocky, you know? Jesus gives him a new name, indicating a new kind of relationship that he now enjoys with him. And one day, when we stand before God, as those who have faithfully followed Jesus to the end, we get a new name too. What will your name be? I don't know. In fact, the text tells us that nobody knows except you and the Lord. And it's a shared relational name between the two of you. I think of it as, as, as very much similar, although this is not a perfect example because it's public. But at the end of the, the most recent Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe film, when all of the kids are enthroned in front of all the animals of Narnia, there are four thrones at Care Paravel, and they're about to sit, and they receive their crowns from Aslan, and each one of them is named. They're given a title. And so you get Queen Lucy, the Valiant, and King Edmund, the Just, and Queen Susan, the Gentle, and King Peter, the Magnificent. I get chills every time I see that scene. Because I think about this chapter and this verse about you're going to get a new name. And it will be tied to what you have done in this life, I think. And how you have uniquely reflected and followed Jesus. And it will be your name between you and him. The one that doesn't share. Gets shared with anybody. It should be obvious, by the way, how this text applies to us. If you have believed, or lived as if you believed, that immorality in any form and Christianity are compatible, then you need to repent. Or otherwise, you will face God's judgment, his discipline on you, his child. And it is serious. And it is severe in some cases. Likewise, a church must exercise discipline over its members and hold them accountable to walk before the Lord in a holy way. We as a church cannot allow people to live in immorality. Or, and we cannot allow the idea that, you, that immorality and Christianity are compatible to be taught because to do so will swiftly bring the entire church under God's discipline. And we all have to choose between faithfully following Jesus and receiving blessing on one hand and immorality and discipline on the other. And being part of a church that disciplines its members when they stray into sin or being one who receives discipline for neglecting that responsibility. So, brothers and sisters, I, I'm not here to beat up on anybody. I'm not. Because we all sin in many ways, but when we do, the right response is not to defend it, it's not to hide it, it's not to make excuses for it or pretend that it's really all okay because who am I to judge? is to repent 
and to be forgiven and to renew your walk with Christ. To renew your walk with Christ. To repent and be forgiven, knowing that there are rewards for walking faithfully. These are two of them. There are a bunch in these three chapters of rewards for walking faithfully with Jesus throughout your life. And I want to receive them all. And I want every one of us to receive them all. And not to come under God's discipline. Not to receive his judgment because we abandoned walking with Jesus. I want every one of us to get that white stone and a new name and enjoy the hidden manna, whatever that is. I pray that all of us would. Let's pray together. God, our Heavenly Father, I thank you that you give us both warnings and encouragements, promises and exhortations. Father, I pray that we would all hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the churches. And that if we are in sin, if we have strayed away, that we would repent and turn from it. That we might follow you faithfully and walk with you day by day in a way that is pleasing and holy. That we might strive for holiness. That we would leave no room for the indulgement of the flesh. But that we would pursue Christ in every part of every day, with every part of who we are as your people. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.